Our scripture reading today is from the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and I'll be reading from chapter 3 and verses 6 through 12. Malachi 3. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. This week and next week, we will be talking about money. And if this is your first time in church and you've heard the rumor that all we ever talk about in church is money, it's going to feel like that for two weeks. Um, the fact is, the Bible actually loves talking about money. I think the fact is also true that we don't actually like talking about money, at least not openly. Um, we might like talking about other people's money or money that we don't have or those kinds of things, but an open conversation about how we handle our finances is somewhat uncomfortable. I'm actually banking on that because we are trying to have caring encounters or challenging conversations, and if this is an easy topic for everybody, then it won't be the challenging conversations I'm anticipating. Um, so I'm hoping that this is slightly uncomfortable, not too uncomfortable, but uncomfortable enough that you are stretched, because in my understanding, that's part of the goal of walking together um, as a church community. So let me give you some orientation. Um, Graham in his prayer kind of covered off a couple of things we've been preaching on lately, so I'm going to try and orient you in the big picture of what I think we're trying to accomplish um, theme-wise in, in the preaching and in our worship. So first, the Lifetime Achievement Award. If you ever watch the Oscars there's every once in a while, or maybe every year, I don't know, I don't watch it every year, a Lifetime Achievement Award. I remember the one, it's got to be 20 years ago. Um, it was Billy Crystal hosting, and he did a tribute to Clint Eastwood, and he sang Old Man Eastwood to the tune of Old Man River from Riverboat. Why I remember that's beyond me, but it's stuck in my head, so I thought I'd share it with you now. You are plagued with that memory as well. You're welcome. So that Lifetime Achievement Award for, for Clint Eastwood is totally irrelevant here. The Lifetime Achievement Award we are all looking for is the one around the Great Commandment, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, right? If ever I am saying something to you from this platform in a formal way that does not include some sort of encouragement in that direction, and especially if it encourages you in the opposite direction, Please challenge me, threaten me, whatever you need to do to hold me accountable, because that's what this Jesus Project is about. 
he, it was his answer to the question, what's the greatest commandment? And so if we are to achieve what it means to be a follower of Christ in our entire lives, it should look something like loving God and loving our neighbor. That's the biggest picture. Our present project, or the film we're working on now, if you will, is called Caring Encounters. Um, that theme or that title, again, I want to give credit to Dr. Morgan Berganza, who's actually helping with the small group material and so on. Um, that's her title from her doctorate. And the, um, the tagline I put with that is real conversations and holding on. How do we have a real conversation even about more difficult or challenging topics, right, and still hang on to each other as we move forward? That's our this year project that we're working on. And then this act of that project is practicing the conversations. So I know some of you anyways, when in the fall I was talking about doing this, you said, you're just talking about this. When do we get to actually do that? Thank you for being so excited. Um, this is your opportunity. I hope you have a group of people with whom you can meet and have these conversations. If you want the guidelines, by the way, I know this sounds a little controlling, and so maybe I have to admit I'm a little bit controlling. You'll have to go through me. I will only directly send them to people because there's a process of this one. It's a bit complicated. My apologies for that. But I will walk you through and make sure you're doing it the way that will help you the best, I think. Or the way maybe Dr. Braganza thinks it'll work out the best. That's even more encouraging, right? Um, so we're practicing these conversations. And today's scene is money. So the first conversation is going to be about money. Um, after this week and next week's sermon, um, there won't be questions about the sermon because I know it sort of feels like then you're evaluating whether or not I talk about money properly. Um, this is actually sort of a lob ball sermon. I'm going to talk about a lot of things about money this week and next week. It doesn't matter about what I think about money. What actually matters in this process is what do you think about how you handle your money and how you make those decisions. So that's the goal or the direction we're going to go. All right, now the passage. Malachi 3, 6 to 12, which I just read. This is God in an honest conversation and holding on, right? You hear that in the language. He's challenging his people. He's Right? He says, we, gotta have a we have to have a talk here. You're robbing me, and you need to test me. Right? So that's the kind of mode or tone um, for this passage. And it starts here, and I want to say that God does not change, because he says, I, the Lord, do not change, but we probably should. And I say that because um, I've had a number of conversations in my lifetime as a pastor where people will say something along the lines of, well, we can't change that because God doesn't change. So you're right, God doesn't change, but when you look at this passage, look, what, look in what way God does not change. Because the Bible actually elsewhere does say that God repents, right? He changes his mind, he does things differently, he moves forward in his process, all those kinds of changes. But the way he doesn't change is in such a way that you, the children of Jacob, you, his people, who's ever in a relationship with him, are not destroyed. The way God doesn't change is that he will always be loving and he will always be faithful. He might change the way he approaches you. He might use new methods. And the fact, of course, that God doesn't change means that the change probably needs to happen on our end. And so it's never an excuse in a church context to say, well, we can't change that because God doesn't change. We might need to change. We might need every once in a while say, oh, we, we, we've been doing that wrong. We had that wrong. And if you're reformed, as this community is, you shouldn't be surprised that sometimes we've gotten things wrong because that's kind of where most of our theology starts. God created us good, things got twisted at the fall, so we shouldn't be surprised that we get a number of things wrong along the way. God doesn't change, absolutely. He's always loving, he's always faithful, he's always gonna come after us in love. 
But along the way, we might need to make some adjustments and recognize, oh boy, got that one wrong. One, uh, I remember early in my ministry, probably my first church, so a long time ago, someone said, so are you telling us that the way we used to do it is wrong? And that used to be a trump card, right? If someone said that to you, no, 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 you weren't doing it wrong. And I said, yeah, I guess I am. I don't think we should be surprised by that. We continually need to let God, through passages like Malachi 3, challenge us and test us and help us to wonder, oh, maybe, maybe I didn't have that quite right. I never did get a drink, did I? Let me pause. Yeah, I can't read that. <laughs> That's small. Relationships are a two-way street is what it says. It's like an eye test. Then the next letter is a big E. I can see that one. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. And when God says that, you might hear that the way some of us deal with, with forgiveness. You might say, see God kind of sitting on his throne there saying, hey, if you want a renewed relationship, you've got to come to me. I'm not making the first move. Yeah, that's not how God works. The whole Bible is the story of God actually chasing after us. But what he's saying is, is, is this. This is how I understand this. Return to me. The minute you say, I'm going to open myself to this conversation with God, he's running toward you. He's ready. He's open. That's his mode, right? But it is a relationship. It is a conversation. It does require that we also go towards God, who's been eagerly hoping we'll go towards him because he wants to come towards us. Don't hear this as a threat from God. Hear this as an invitation that he wants this relationship. And relationships are always two-way streets. So the text says, but you ask, how are we to return? And I just wanted to wonder, with you out loud, are we asking that question? Is part of your journey of following Jesus wondering, is there more I can do? Is there another step I should be taking? Where am I at right now? And how do I return more of my life to God? How do I grow in my relationship with God? Right? Each of us needs to continually wonder for ourselves. Right? Are we going through the Christian motions, which means I show up at church and I participate in those ways, or are we doing this because it actually reshapes our relationship with God and stretches us further and forms us more and more into his likeness, which is the idea that we're more loving of God and that we can actually experience that we're more loving of those around us as well. And then the challenging conversation with God, here's where we start about money. God says, will you mere mortals rob me, God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? This is a good question. How, how could you possibly rob God? Do you picture someone kind of sneaking into heaven, however you picture heaven, kind of getting into the throne room there and realizing God's got a lot of money and grabbing some and throwing it in your pocket and running away with it? Right? How can we as humans actually rob God? It's a great question asked by the Israelite people, at least the words put in their mouth by Malachi. It looks like, however, God wants to have this conversation. And when God has a challenging conversation with you, don't be surprised when he asks you a question and you're going, I don't even understand the question. 
right? Sometimes God's very question is enough to start stretching us um, in our conversation. That says, stew number one, it all belongs to God. Now, this is not going to be an analogy about different kinds of stew to make you hungry. Um, this is, that's the short form for stewardship. If you write stewardship, although in that font, if I write stewardship, I got lots of room. If you write stewardship in the font that I was hoping was going to be up there, um, then it takes up too much space. So it's just, number one principle of all stewardship is everything already belongs to God. And if you've been around church and stewardship sermons and so on, you've probably heard that line before. I just want to remind you how incredibly radical that kind of thinking is, right? I want to suggest to you, possibly accuse you, of constantly, every day, thinking about your money as your money, not God's money, right? Anyone willing to admit with me that we actually think about our money as our own, right? We control our money all of our lives, right? We decide who we're going to give, and we publish in the newsletter here what causes we gave to and so on, right? We make those decisions because it's our money, and we will decide what you get with it and all those kinds of things. We even try and control it after our lives. It's called a will, right? Um, so let's at least start by being honest. Our natural, usual Canadian perspective is my money's mine, and I decide what I do with it, okay? Because knowing that will allow us to at least begin the conversation with God around biblical stewardship, which is God's just kind of lending it to you for a while, right? You are a steward of whatever you have, and the steward, the owner of all the stuff is God. He's given it to you, and he says, um, run with this. I encourage you to figure out how best to use whatever I give you, however I bless you, right? But I always kind of remember that I'm going to call for an account, and what you're doing with it is, well, it's mine. So do it in ways that would honor me. Malachi says it this way, in tithes and offerings, that's the way we rob God. You're under curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Because in God's economy, in God's way of thinking about things, giving him the tithe was the Old Testament principle, giving him a tenth of everything you had, that's just the way it worked, right? I like to always present it to people this way. You have responsibility to manage for yourself 90% of whatever God gives you. And the other 10%, you are meant to give to somebody else to manage. That's just part of our trust. Our trust. That's part of the tithe. Right? Now, we can have, and I suggest you have this in your small groups when you're having these conversations, talk about tithing. Right? Our tradition is not historically talked about tithing as tithing. is about 10%. Right? Um, we don't. I might be suggesting at the end of this message that we do this. We don't hand in our T4s and say, okay, well, we're, that's the tenth, and I expect to see a donation receipt for one-tenth of what you've given. Start thinking about that. Would that be an idea? That we as a community covenant together to hand in our T4 slips is probably, we've got to figure out which of those lines, you know, right? Because there's gross and net and other words I don't understand. Um, so don't ask me to plan the financial part of this. But the concept of us being mutually accountable at the level where we all say, we're part of this community. We trust that God can take, no, God already has 100%, and so we're going to allow the deacons to have 10% of everything we earn, and they're going to figure out what this looks like moving forward. That's accidental, but apparently that's telling me to move on. 
participating in God's economic system. This is God's economic system. Bring the whole tithe, give whatever you were meant to give, put it in the storehouse, put it in the treasury, put it in the temple in his case, put it in the deacon's uh, purse, if you will, in our case, that there may be food in my house. So now understand this. The temple system in the Old Testament was such that the tithe that everybody gave went to the temple, that fed, that fed the priests, in our case, pay staff, people like me, right? It also was a storehouse so they could eat. It was also so they could give to the poor, right? So when you talk in your small groups, there will be some sort of question around, how do you connect our benevolent giving, our sharing of our wealth so other people can have what they need, with the fact that we also have a tax system, which in my humble opinion, has some Christian roots to it. Because our tax system does what? It produces a social safety net, among other things. Now, again, we're not going to get into politics and decide, are they using all that money in the proper way? The answer is always no and yes at the same time. But the fact is, the system is designed that we tithe through tax into a system that makes sure that people who are in need get picked up along the way and get carried. I think there's a lot of good thought behind that, right? But God's economy is that I own everything, I'm letting you manage a whole bunch of it, and part of what you manage should be put into a storehouse, into a temple situation, such that everybody is cared for. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the full Bible and all the justice conversations, especially the prophets, his idea, God's idea in his economy, is that everybody is completely cared for. And I want to suggest to you that whatever economic system you believe in or are part of is not fully functional and healthy or kingdom of God oriented until actually everybody is taken care of. So we always will have a lot of work to do. Jesus said that. The poor you'll always have with you, right? He wasn't just saying give up. The poor you'll always have with you. He was saying you have a continuing task to do here. I just want us to be challenged because we tend to be similar economic social circumstances here. But God's economy is the world. And he'd like to know that we are concerned that the world is being cared for in an equitable kind of manner. Anything to talk about so far for your small group conversations? Are we working here? All right. This raises a few questions. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Does anyone remember Jesus' temptation? Luke 4, Matthew 4. Do not put the Lord your God to the test, said Jesus. God says, test me. So maybe, if the Bible's a rule book, then the rule is only test God when he tells you to. I don't happen to think the Bible is a rule book. I just think there's different circumstances. It's telling a story of our relationship with God. And when God is frustrated with us, he says, all right, try me on this, please. He's begging us, try and trust me on this process and see if it actually works out the way I say. Right? He's got a decent chance of winning that gamble, don't you think? It's God, it's his world right? If we actually trust on that. Does anyone else here find it incredibly hard to trust God with their finances fully, right? That's what he's pointing out here. We are so trained to be Canadian, and we happen to go to church when it comes to money, right? You know it's meant to be the other way around. We're supposed to be fully engaged with Jesus and happen to be Canadian and affected by our economy and those kinds of things. Test me in this, says the Lord. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. That also causes 
a bit of a challenge in my mind. Because, well, there's a whole bunch of health and wealth kind of theology out there where if, if you give properly to the church, then God will guarantee that you are wealthy. I don't know that he's saying that. Because God doesn't actually talk to us individually very often in the Bible. Here, as in many places, he's talking to the community of us. And so I would agree this way. Not if you personally give responsibly, then God will personally bless you and your system and your business and your life and your family. No. I think it looks more like this in a biblical manner. If all of us would participate generously, fully, in whatever it means for us and however we decide we are going to give and share, then we'll have an opportunity to be an incredible blessing in this world to all kinds of people. All right? So I have heard people say, well, my business is blessed because, no, you didn't earn that, right? Be so careful with that. So if God blesses you, he's blessed you, and be, be thankful, name that, that's awesome, great language. But be aware that it's, 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 not, it's not a deal you've made with God, right? God, I'm going to give 10%, and therefore you have blessed me. No, sometimes you'll also make your business go south even though you've given generously because maybe he wants to teach you something else. I'm sort of saying God's God, right? So God's going to make all the decisions. I can't tell you what they're all going to be. But generally speaking, he wants us to trust that our generosity will actually produce goodness on a very, very broad and grand scheme. And that's where this comes in. This is the goal. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So um, this is the vision I have for us. And when I say that, I'm telling you what I can see. I'm not saying this is what we need to do because I don't get to decide that. You probably already know that. But this is, what, this is what I'd love to see. What if we all did tithe? What if we all gave 10% to whatever system we want to put in place? The deacons are going, whoa, we, got, we ain't managing all that. We've got to have more people on board for that. Okay, so we come up with some system where we actually tithe. You know how much money that would be? Anyone ever done some math on that? It'd be a lot more in our budget. Hate to break it to you. Right? I'm going with millions and millions, actually, so that we would have to figure out now what the heck are we going to do with all that money? And the community would look at us and they wouldn't call us a blessed nation because we're not a nation. They'd go, What's up with that Mountain View community of people? They're forever starting new things and blessing people and, and opening up ministries because they got way too much money to give away. I think that would work. I think that would work. It would also be hard, let's be honest. This is the first question that comes to our mind. I think that I've heard this before. Maybe it's not just my question. Who are we going to trust to make those decisions? Right? Isn't that why we withhold our funds till the very last minute when we're forced to make sure the budget fits, because we're not really sure they're going to spend it on good stuff, right? They might pave the parking lot, and we don't want to pave the parking lot. They might do this, and we, we want to do that, right? We would have to really trust each other in order to make that kind of a move, right? I'm surprised, by the way, that we have so many different causes that we support in a month, because the deacons ask for four, one per Sunday, and there's always 10 or 15 on there. 
just a curiosity question. You can discuss this in your small group. Why are we laundering money for all these other organizations? You know you can give directly to them, right? You don't need to do that through us. We as deacons, and the deacons are us, the deacons, as Mountain View say, we're giving to this cause. My challenge to you, you can do it how you want to, but my challenge to you is to say, I trust those deacons. So if the offering today is for Reframe, the deacons must have vetted that, and so we're going to give to Reframe today because that's what we're giving to. If I want to give to other things, God bless you, do that, right? But you don't need to do that through this system. So what if? What if we trusted each other and God, sounds like love God and love your neighbor, enough that we had this incredible pot of generously given money and said, now we got this awesome problem, God. We need to pray to you and ask you, where in the world are we going to give that? What are we going to do with that? How else can we multiply what you're doing in this world? And I would suggest to you that if we test God in that way, he might just bless us and we could be a blessing to the nations. So I kind of jumped the gun on my last one. That's what I was just talking about. Do we want to take the God test? Do we want to tithe? And you know, getting to the tithe would be a wonderful long conversation all by itself because we'd have to figure out, how do we know? And how do I know that Adam's tithing just because I'm tithing? Because right now, there's no way anybody except for the treasurer is getting that information. Right? That's another conversation in your small group. Why are we so scared about people knowing what we do with our money? Why is that a private conversation? I understand that culturally, we've decided that. It's not the biblical point of view, by the way. The Bible's really honest, embarrassingly honest about people's money, right? So, we're going to have this conversation. I hope many of you find a chance to be in it. Let's just start by talking about how do we think about this? What are our concerns? What are our challenges? How comfortable are we are? And Dr. Berganza is going to make you actually talk about, well, how did that feel to talk about that? Because that's important for you as well, right? And, and my trust is that this will lead us forward in our understanding of God, money, stewardship, and generosity. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for inviting us into your journey and your conversation. Thank you for your incredible life that lived off of the generosity of others and then showed the ultimate generosity in giving yourself, sacrificing yourself. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that in response to your sacrificial love for us, you would continue to challenge us to grow in our understanding of what it means to be sacrificially generous with others and in our world. Guide us in these conversations, and may we grow further in our understanding of your truth. We pray in your holy name. Amen.